1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who
1: knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by Acast.
1: How are you doing? It is time, I think it's fair to say, to celebrate. The lockdown is more or less over. You know the drill in this podcast. We try to make the economy that little bit more comprehensible. And the interesting thing is now it's hard in terms of visibility to see what the next months and quarters, to use that awful expression, will actually pan out to be. Because it'll be interesting to see how we, that's you and me, how we, we go back into the world. But one man who's never left this world <laughs> is the head himself, Johnny Boy. How are you doing, Mac? I'm in great form, John. I'm flying form. Do you know what I find funny is
3: the... you know the way? And in fairness, it's, it's really difficult to try and figure out the safest way and the best way to get back to normality and inverted commas. But... So people are coming up with crazy kind of rules and suggestions. But I think the craziest one of all is that if they reduce the social distancing to one and a half metres or a metre or whatever it is, and you go into a pub, you can only stay there for 90 minutes. If you stay there for 91, you'll get COVID.
1: You'll get COVID, exactly. <laughs> and you will definitely get COVID if you don't have a meal That's that right. costs more than nine quid. <laughs> yeah. Or nine euros. I mean, it's and you got to have Tato instead of Kings, yeah, 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 exactly. Tenora, if you could to a core, yeah, tenora, exactly. But you imagine, you see, what I always love about these arbitrary bureaucratic rules is you can imagine Egypt's inside in some department of this, that, and the other, yeah, making up. And somebody says, Uh, how are you, boss? Uh, I think if we do a nine euro dinner piece, it means they can't be having crisps and just peanuts and they have to eat, and then somebody says, Oh. Oh, yeah, 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 that's good. But nobody comes around. You have to sit around the table to eat. Exactly. You've got to exactly, be yeah. served by somebody or else you have a buffet. But apparently buffets are the worst thing in the world now. Oh, well, of so course, you, yeah. Your the carvery. Are, yeah. Your carvery is gone. I the love roast. the old carvery. I know you do love the old carvery. Uh, <laughs> we could go on. But you're good. You're surviving. I was <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, good old week. Good. You did a good week. did we a great week. Well, I tell you, it did a great week because we, we launched the Dorky yep. Literary Awards, yep, yep. right? And we had two brilliant winners. We would one for Emerging writer and one for established novelist. Yeah. And the established novelist was won by Christine Dwyer Hickey. And she is an amazing writer. Not as celebrated a name as you get around the place, but the judges took her book, which is called The Narrow Land. Yeah. And they said it was outstanding. So again, it's in a funny thing. You're kind of delighted as well that the judges come up with somebody who's slightly been overlooked maybe because... Right. I know from publishing stuff, John, it's like the bounce of a ball. You know, sometimes the ball bounces and everything goes well for you. Other times you publish, you don't get reviewed, the sales aren't good. Then, yeah. once the sales aren't good, there's no buzz. And suddenly something, and again, Christine had worked for six years on this book and something. That's a hell of an investment. A, it is, it a, is a huge investment. Like, look, I'm always writing books, as you know, and trying to. They yeah. take a long, long time. So that was great. That's the. That's the, the novel of the year. And that was 20 grand. And again, she said, look, and it was lovely. She said on Saturday to us, like, I was thinking of giving up. She said to my husband, oh, really?" She's, she's a great writer. Yeah. I was thinking of giving up and then I win this and suddenly it's validation and it's cash. And you know what? I'll go back again. So yeah, that's, yeah. and the whole point of the awards was to actually give back to artists and writers in a year where they didn't have any money. And the emerging writer Sinead Gleeson. Sinead is a gorgeous person. I've known yeah. her for a long time. Constellation's her first book. Majestic work. Like, and really personal. It's essays, but there's, there's, there's a rift between the whole thing. And it's a, it's her life story, but it's very, very deep and personal. And it lands perfectly. Yeah. So I'm delighted. Two great, two, again, two great female writers, two very strong women in a very, very strong category. And what I'm delighted about John. Is that we have managed with the help of Zurich? I mean, Zurich have been really, really good. Sure. They wrote the check. You know, we came up with the idea. They wrote the check, and the check is the crucial thing. And hopefully, this will become part of the literary calendar now, from now on. And yeah, I really absolutely. intend to make it. A, maybe we'll end up at the Costa Awards in the UK, like something that will be really meaningful. So it was a it was a good week. Yeah, because
3: of course, the, the last weekend was would have been. The Doki Book Festival.
1: Yeah, I know, I and, know. And
3: it, which is always a highlight in the, the calendar. So at least there was this. So that's fantastic. Yeah, Congratulations. We'll be, yeah, we'll
1: be back. We'll be back stronger next next year, definitely. You know, and, and you know, this COVID carry-on will be gone. And uh, we'll be back to full tents and shouting and roaring and yeah. talking and... <laughs> debauchery. Debauchery and <laughs> drinking and talking and uh, it's great stuff. It's great stuff. The other thing, John, is this oh, week I'm giving a lecture on the role of money in pre-Renaissance Florence. Now, how obscure is that? Brilliant. That's certainly niche. It's very niche, right? (laughs) The role of money in Dante's Divine Comedy, right? Right. So I was asked to do this last January. I knew nothing about Dante, a Divine Comedy. I decided to actually say, you know what, that'll be a good thing to do. For your head, Mm. to Mm. read a book. It's like... You know, it's like the blooms I don't know where you have the
3: space, but it's anyway. like the,
1: yeah, but it's like the blooms I think. Should you read Ulysses? Should you not? You know, just go and read it and see, right? Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And i am given that, and you will love this is very niche. It's the Dublin Dante Summer School. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, I'd say that's backed up, is it? That's that's a jammers
1: <laughs> gig. If you want to know, Google it, the Dublin Dante Summer School on Wednesday night, and I'll be talking about Dante. And it's really interesting. It allowed me to go back into a classic work of European literature that I knew nothing about, Mm. really. Yeah. And all the circles of hell and the inferno and purgatory and the paradiso and the whole thing. But more interestingly, to have a look at a a period in history, the 12th and 13th century, that we think, ooh, that was all kind of games, games of thrones sort of shite, right? But in actual fact, it was the bridge between the gothic world the old world yeah. and the renaissance and yeah. our world enlightenment and all that stuff and the role of money in that bridge and facilitating lots and yeah. lots of trade and exchange and we should come back to that we should come you back think to it's gonna be a good podcast yeah, i think it'd be
3: great to look back on you know economies of ancient civilizations and societies you well, know we, and, and start start there with dante as
1: we say at the top of the of the show every week Okay, I love going to the show. It's not a podcast, it's a show, right? <laughs> this is the TV, <laughs> the entertainer in me, right? You know, economics is about human nature. And when you read Dante, you realize that human nature has not changed. And the reason Dante is so brilliant is he was so pissed off. He wanted to exert, he was exiled from Florence, right? Yeah. And he thought wrongly so. So he spent. Who, his who years, exiled him? The, there was actually a civil war within Florence and he was ended up on the wrong side, oh, right. right? Okay. So he's exiled, right? And in exile, he takes with him this vengeance, this deep, searing resentment mm. for all the fuckers who did him wrong, right? And the great thing about vengeance—it's—it's it's the vengeance—is the best ammunition for writing. It's brilliant because yeah, it makes yeah. you mad, and he's like, I'm that bollocks, <laughs> "And that bollocks, and that bollocks." And basically, it's a list of bollocks who did him wrong, right? <laughs> Starting with the Pope, right? He hates oh, right, the Pope, okay, yeah. yeah. So it's great stuff, and. Couldn't stand bankers and he couldn't stand bureaucrats and it's basically everyone who in his eyes did yeah. him wrong, <laughs> <You> know, I'm <laughs> gonna get them all. So that's what makes it so exciting. So it's it's kind of it's a, he's venting spleen about against the world. And the thing about vengeance, I was actually looking at Nasim Talib. You know Nasim Talib? Mm, who's, Black Swan dude. Yeah, and you've met him with me and he's done economics mm. and he's a peculiar creature, right? And he, he's, Grumpy. Oh, he's brutal grumpy. <laughs> he's brutal grumpy. I tell you the time I met him, I met him in New York and I said, will you come to Kilkenomics? He said, I'll go to Kilkenomics if you meet me for dinner. So Nassim Taleb, myself and Shan met for dinner and after chatting, he was quite grumpy and he just said to me, do you have a corporate sponsor? I said, no. So, Do you work for a corporation? No. Do you work for a university? I said, no, because I just do the adjunct thing at Trinity. Mm. He said, so you've no permanent income? I said, no. He said, perfect, I'll do it. <laughs> He says, that was his whole idea, was like the basically, if you're, if you're Goldman Sachs or something, yeah, I'm not coming near you. Yeah, yet. I have no interest. Yeah. But he was writing about vengeance the other day in a tweet, which I thought was very strange. And he was saying that vengeance is a moral duty. Eh? Now, that's quite interesting, yeah. right? And you should be methodical but he said you could oh you should only be
3: methodical
1: yeah but he interestingly <laughs> in how you exact how you exacted but he also said it's quite funny isn't it but he also said I thought it was a great so you thing. get a hit man and yeah you... <laughs> you get a hit man it's tony soprano the whole thing but he also said something you should only execute vengeance when you've almost forgotten about the crime against you which i really think is deep and dark wow. and weird and right And twisted. And twisted. But Dante is all about vengeance. So that's another thing we're talking about. So if you want to go to it, just Google the Dublin Dante Summer School.
3: The other things that are happening this week is we have our new government and the programme for government. Yes, John. Which there still seems to be a bit of bickering going on about. Yeah, I
1: think, the. I mean, I'm not sure. The Greens are not 100% bored. But I mean... What is interesting, John, the big, big issue in Ireland, as registered by the election,
3: mm. was
1: a massive demographic divide, that the young voted overwhelmingly for Sinn Féin,
3: yeah, yeah, they and did, the yeah. old,
1: old voted overwhelmingly for Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Mm. Now, what struck me about the programme for government is that this essential conflict at the heart of Ireland was not addressed. So I mean, there is a word called a gerontocracy. A gerontocracy yeah. is a country run by geriatrics. It's a country run by old men. Right. So if you go back in history, so for example, Plato always thought that all countries should be run by the elderly because he was saying- they're that, wise. They're wise. Yeah. So it's the yeah, yeah. Athens, the Athenian democracy should affect the older, you know. The Romans, on the other hand, didn't. The Roman, even the Roman Republic, if you look at the heroes of the Roman Republic, they were all quite young. And then when the Romans became an empire, all the emperors were quite young. The reason was that they didn't last long. Yeah. Very few yeah. emperors actually died in their own bed. I actually think only Diocletian, who ended up living in Croatia, or what was then obviously split, and the Roman Empire, ended up dying oh, okay. of old age. Yeah. Most of them were murdered. Like it's, people forget that being the emperor in Rome was a very dangerous business. Yeah, yeah. Like you'd be better off being slightly <laughs> below the emperor, you know, in your purple tunic. But the yeah, emperor, yeah, because they like,
3: didn't quite have a secret service to, they didn't, to look
1: after Yeah, people. exactly. Yeah, exactly. There was no CIA. with things
3: in their ears. No,
1: no, no. There was, you know, and you know the whole thing, and we and we know that Caesar, a two Brutus, these were all murdered in, yeah. in 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 the Senate. So, and this old way of looking at government is. Quite strange because, for example, communist governments were always run by old men. I right, remember like in the old in the old days of yeah. Brezhnev, you know, like it was basically the fellow who could just about barely get up the stairs yeah, yeah, of the yeah. plinth, of the funeral plinth at Brezhnev funeral. He was the guy who was going to go yeah. in next. And there was Chernenko, and there was all these really yeah, ancient
3: actually, guys. Actually, you know, look at the current American election.
1: You have two 70-year-olds. Well north of 70. Oh yeah, but I mean 70, yeah. 70 plus yeah. year olds. So it's not just communism. So it's basically in the resplendent home of freewheeling capitalism mm. and in the resplendent home of uh, stultified communism, you have this gerontocracy, right? But basically the idea is, John, that the older the government the more likely that government is to reflect the concerns of their constituency. Sure. Now, Ireland has a strange thing in the fact that Fianna Gael are a young bunch, right? You Mm. know, for Radker and Paschaldun and all those guys. They're young, right? But they're voted in by the old. And Fianna Fáil are voted in by the old. And now when you look at this program for government, you have this a program for government for the old. There is no sense. of Basically, it's more or less the status quo. Right, Right. as it was. Yes, there's a sop to housing, but it's not a radical sop to housing. So the question then is, if you think that the divide in Ireland is between the young and old, how will this government actually reflect that if all their policies in the program for government are more or less, okay, think about it, more or less a cut-and-paste job from their manifestos before the election. Yeah. This was before it became crystal clear that there is a significant economic, social, and wealth division. Mm. Now, of course, COVID has amplified that, John, because young people have lost their jobs. On one measurement, the CSO is one measurement. It's called the broad measure of youth unemployment. It's yeah. now 50%. So young yeah. people have lost their job in retail.
3: Yeah,
1: You look at even... Even our kids looking for part-time jobs now, they can't oh, I get know. them.
3: I know. Some can't get them. the same, yeah.
1: Hospitality, tourism, these are all the jobs of the young. So yeah. COVID has amplified this. And what you're seeing is, you know that expression, that's always expression about the, the young and the old, that if you're not a socialist at 20, you have no heart. And if you're still a socialist at 40, you have no head. Yeah. Right? You know that expression? Yeah, yeah. That's maybe not holding true because... If you even look in Europe now, the young are voting to the right and the left because they're being left outside. So their wages are lower, their job security is lower, they're locked out of the housing market, they don't feel they have a stake. So we've always talked in this program about insiders and outsiders. Yeah, insiders are old. So the people with a stake, with connections, with networks, with access to power are all old. The outsiders are young, and that means the outsiders, the young, don't have a stake. But they might not have a stake, but they have a vote.
3: Yeah. And they've yeah.
1: voted overwhelmingly against the present government. And that, I believe, is something significant that it doesn't strike me that the present and the future government has taken on board. It seems to
3: me, you're you're absolutely right, it seems to me that the young right across Europe are becoming more extreme. Actually, Neil Howe was talking about this before, like looking at all the, the key players in European politics, and indeed American politics, as I just said, are all old. Whereas the AFD in Germany, the right wing in Italy, in Austria...
1: They're all young. And they're all all
3: 40-year-olds. And they're
1: all emerging with a different worldview. There's no doubt of that. Absolutely. There's no doubt of that. So where does that going to lead then? Well, I think if you look, so there's this thing we've spoken about before, right, is the process. Remember we spoke about this idea of scarring. Yeah. These events have long-term ramifications on people's wages. And the reason is the following. So it's, it's this American data that shows that when you graduate in a recession, your income is permanently... And for your whole career, lower than somebody who graduates in a boom. And the reason is that your sense of yourself is lower, okay? Because your struggle in your 20s is more difficult financially. And the floor, your, your opening wage, it's interesting in life, your opening wage sets the floor to future wages. And if that floor is very low and very insecure, it actually plays out Not only in your 20s, Mm. in your 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is an extraordinary thing. So that's the first thing to think about. The second thing to think about in terms of COVID is that the wealth gap between the young and the old has changed profoundly. That all the wealth now in the world, in the West, Mm. is increasingly going to the old. And I'll give you some statistics for the States. And this is really shocking. In the United States, right, If you look at the three big generations, the baby boomers, the generation X, which is us true, and then millennials, right? These these three big generations, right? When, and it's a a study done done by the Federal Reserve, which tried to see how much of the national wealth does each demographic own when they get to 35 years old, right? 35 being insignificant because that's when you would... Again, in our parents' generation, certainly have had kids. We had kids. But you then you're supposed to be grown up. You're supposed to be grown up. You're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. (laughs) We're not grown up yet. I know. (laughs) And now for nearly 20 years beyond that. But that's another thing. That's just. But again, when American baby boomers hit the median age of 35 in 1990, they collectively owned 21% of all American wealth,
3: right? Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: When our generation, the generation Xers, Reached the collective age of thirty-five, which is in two thousand and eight, we owned just nine percent of American wealth. Wow! And it's when,
3: sorry, sorry, two thousand eight. Do those figures have anything to do with the collapse? No, just be- collapse? Just,
1: just before the financial okay. collapse, right? Okay. The millennials, the generation coming behind us, their average collective age is now thirty-one, and they only own three percent of total wealth. Wow! Really? Wow. So what you can see is the wealth has been profoundly skewed to the old, right? So, the generation above us were doing okay. Yeah. We were doing less well than them, and the generation behind us are doing much less well than us. Now it means millennials will never catch up at that rate unless yeah. you have a dramatic change in policy. So they're the data from the United States, right? And the interesting thing of the Americans, John, is they have really granular data. They're very good at statistics, yeah. right? Yeah. But given what we know about Ireland and Britain and other English-speaking countries, there's no reason to believe that our underlying problems are miles away from the Americans. They're not as bad, but it's exactly the same trend.
3: Yeah, we always follow the same pattern.
1: And and again, I did a documentary a couple of years, about five years ago, called Ireland's Great Wealth Divide. Mm. And that was all about who owns money and where is it going, who owns the wealth of the country. So take those American figures, which are really shocking. Put them on the Irish context, which is that the young are being increasingly elbowed out. We know that 80% of Irish wealth is in housing and land. That we also know that the people with what's called financial wealth, which is stocks and shares and things like that, that's always a minority skewed at the very top and the very rich. Because the vast majority of people don't ever play the stock market. They may do through their pensions passively, but they don't feel they're part of that game, right? So you think, okay... One, we have the evidence from the election, which is that the youth voted overwhelmingly for Sinn Féin. Mm. Two, we know that COVID amplified the youth's sense of not having a stake. Three, we know that politics in Europe splits between insiders and outsiders. So it's not so much urban and rural, or so much the always secular and conservative. It's actually between these insiders and outsiders, and we know that the young are much more likely to be outsiders, which is why they vote for an outsider party. Yeah. Then you superimpose on that the data from the states, which shows this massive, massive bias against the millennials, massive. And you think, okay, that's going on in Ireland too. Yeah. Because that's why people voted radically left rather than centrist. And then you think this government, despite being populated by reasonably young men in their late 30s, is actually reflecting status quo, which is the interests of the old. And then you think, how long will a government like this last? Yeah. And will it simply amplify the already burning feeling of the young that they're being left out? And when I look at the Programme for Government, John, I'm thinking, but
3: you know, it begs the question, Why? why are they missing this trick?
1: What's interesting... John, is that, you know, I believe, I've always believed, I've never believed in the radical right or the radical left. I've always believed in the radical centre, that the centre provides the ballast and it's where most people want to be and it's where most normal, not so much normal, most rational, reasonable decisions are made. Mm, the yeah. radical right freak me out, they scare me. The radical left kind of scare me too, right? Mm. Radical but what anything
3: isn't particularly good.
1: Yeah, but what annoys me is that the liberal centre doesn't realise that the only political battle now in Ireland is between the generations. It's not between right and left anymore, you know. Lots of people have sort of changed their ideas of what's left, what's right. It's not between, you know, when we were kids, like the difference between us and our parents was really social. It was lifestyle. It was liberal. We were... Certainly I was, you know, very, 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 very tolerant, very accepting, really wanted all the legislation, like gay marriage and abortion. I Mm -hmm. wanted all those things. The gap between me and my mum and dad was a social gap about lifestyle.
3: Yeah. You were a candy ass liberal.
1: I was a candy-ass liberal. One of the very few candy-ass liberals knocking around. That's from the Blues Brothers, by the way. Go on. I always thought people who watched the Blues Brothers had no taste. But there you go. Oh, anyway, it's true. Oh it's, God, okay. But that's just me. That's just me. Anyway, I look at my kids, right? I listen to their playlists. Yeah. I, so socially, we're the same. My kids and me are the same. We believe in the same things. But economically, we're two different creatures. So the gap between me and my dad and my mum when i was young was a social gap yeah the gap between my kids and me is an economic gap right now it's hard to see that gap narrowing unless we have active policies to embrace the fact that the young need a stake yeah and that means addressing land and housing issues because that's where the wealth of course, is tied that's up that's
3: the main thing for
1: that's the main yeah. main thing And the other thing is preserving small businesses that are exposed because they're the people who employ people in retail and hospitality, tourism, and that's what we're not seeing. And that intrigues me why youngish politicians Mm. would, rather than say, okay, because if you think of it, if you lose the youth, you lose the future.
3: Well, I I was going to say, yeah, because, you know, if you can draw comparisons with Germany, Germany was always a much older nation- mm-hmm. and of course they were we've been living off their pensions and savings for for years, so
1: but we have been buying their cars yes with, the, with the same with That's the same true. recycled That's true. money
3: true true true, but the whole thing about the as we spoke before about the older generation tend to save more, so yeah. what's the implications of that for the the but,
1: future as I've always thought, we are the youngest of the old Ireland is the youngest country in the old world. Mm. That provides us with amazing opportunities to use the savings of the old and the low interest rates and yeah. all that sort of stuff to reimagine the country. Yeah, We can refinance all Irish debt at ridiculously low interest rates now, which is what we should do. We should also have a what I call a side value tax on land because land is an unproductive asset. Yeah, And as long as you don't tax it, you basically allow it to be passed on through generations. And it's a cost for most people, mm. because most people don't own land. So you should charge landowners and remit those that, that income to people who don't own land. And you should look at housing as a cost, not an investment. It's yeah. not a source of wealth, right? So that demands a reasonably thoroughgoing assessment of what is wrong with the country. And fix it. You know the way, you know the way alcoholics, John, because we're talking about the lockdown, right? Have this, you know, if you go into AA, apparently, yeah, you have this thoroughgoing inventory of your own self. Right. right you go right. through, like, you're actually very honest. Like, do I do this? Do I do that? And the whole point of politics is to reimagine the society if you didn't inherit what you've inherited. Right. So if you start with a blank piece of paper, right? And then identify. What's the big issue here? The big issue here is the young versus the old. How do we rectify this without terrifying the old, but giving the young hope? Mm. And what you do then is you change policy accordingly. What we have seen, despite the fact that the election has signaled that the young and the old is the big battle, we have seen the parties of the center deciding to go with the interests of the old. Now, as a political calculation, that seems to me to be ludicrous because what's going to happen to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is progressively their electorate is dying. Yeah. So it will open up the field for something else. Sinn Féin or some variety of Sinn Féin. Now, what amazes me in Ireland is that we have had a program for government, and I read it yesterday, and I went through it, and I thought, there isn't one... Policy that favors the youth. And that amazes me. This week's Schumpeter is a very interesting brewing company called Rascals Brewery. Now we've got two people on the line Emma Devlin, the chief executive and one of the founders, and a man I used to listen to religiously on TXFM, one of the great radio stations, Joe Donnelly. I'm delighted to welcome the pair of you to the show. Emma Devlin, Emma, how are you?
2: Not too bad now, how are you doing?
1: I'm flying, I'm flying. Tell me, give me a little bit of the background of Rascal before we talk about COVID and how you've reacted to it.
2: Yeah, so um, it started off in 2014, a small brewery based in Rascool, County Dublin, with my husband. We did well where we were for about four years. We, We did well with our kegged beer, mostly around Dublin and canned beer around the country. In 2018, yes, we we got a new brewery in Inchicore in Dublin. And in that site, we were able to build a pizza restaurant and install a brand new brewery. So it became a very small, like six people working in the business to a couple of months later 25 people working there and oh wow that's that's, a multi
1: that's massive that's a
2: huge yeah a multi-faceted business with a, a brewery a restaurant and then we started doing tours as well so um it just kind of transformed very quickly uh two years ago
1: you know as we went into into march of 2020 which i know it's only three months ago, but geez, it seems like it seems like years ago. I presume so the pizzeria was going well, the brewing was going well, the orders were going well, and then it all stopped.
2: Yeah, with a bang. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and tell me now, so you were you're very involved in the local community, I heard.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um Joe will probably be able to give you a little bit more on this. But well, Joe, do you want to step in?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Firstly, thanks, David, for the very nice uh, introduction. And it's it's great to talk to you again. With Rascals Brewing, in my role as marketing manager, I attended a a craft beer conference in the Porter House in Glasnevin, and Magic Rock Brewing were there, and they're a very successful UK brewing company from Huddersfield. And the one thing that stuck in my mind from that talk was the head of Magic Rock Brewing said that the best business decision he ever made was, was sponsoring Huddersfield FC. And I thought to myself, okay, that's interesting. And he explained why when you invest in the locality, when you invest in the community, and you back something in there whether it's a sports club or or anything that you're going to get back the business tenfold you're going to get back the goodwill and not only that but it's a nice thing to do it, it you know it, it's good for your business it makes you feel good to be able to do something like that to use your marketing budget to support something so one of the first moves so I basically, made was, can i
1: stop you there so as, yeah? a, as a rovers fan i hope you didn't entertain you know <laughs> su- supporting st pat's yes
0: we are absolutely Saint Pat's. We are saying. Hold on, we're going to go. John, you didn't <laughs> tell me this The <laughs> stuff. Sorry, come, on, we're out of come here. on, come on, come on, come on. But the relationship that I've had with Saint Pat's has been just absolutely brilliant. From the minute we said yes, we'll sponsor, you know, uh, and 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 say, for example, in the first season, it was uh, Man of the Match and a few other small bits and pieces. We worked together on a package. But from the minute I did that, you would not believe the amount of support that we got instantly from the local community. And I remember seeing tweets from people saying oh they tag rascals and they go hey support our sponsors everyone you know let's go up there for pizza let's buy their beer and like you just that was instant like that was wow that's amazing it's absolutely incredible so that was the first way of embedding ourselves in the community and in Shakur and and I hope that doesn't sound like some sort of mad strategy it wasn't we we wanted to give something back we wanted like one of the things that the other point that I want to make in tandem with the thing about St. Pat's is that when a business opens up in a, in a community and they're not from that community, right? And and they might be perceived as, oh, who are these guys coming in with this brewery and a pizzeria and all the rest of it? If you stay aloof and you don't give something back and you don't sort of, you just, you land there and you go, right, here's our business. Come on, buy, buy our food or beer. You're not going to get anything. Whereas if you respond to every community request, to every person who walks in and goes, there's a school raffle next week. Could we, could we get a voucher for the restaurant? I yeah. mean, from the biggest to the smallest, when you do stuff like that, you absolutely garner support that will stay forever. I'll give you a good example. Just today, we did a Facebook competition recently, and I we, we picked a random winner. And I emailed the winner and I said, can you send us your details? You've won the case. And he went, oh, brilliant. Thanks a million. Oh, by the way, he was in Drimna. By the way, you gave a voucher to our school raffle last year, and it meant so much to us. Thanks a million. Keep up the good work. So like,
1: so they already yeah, they, know you. They already know you.
0: They, they already know who we are. So like we did things like we worked with Core Youth Services who are, it's a youth service organization that work with disadvantaged and marginalized teenagers in InchCore. We did a pizza training workshop for them. Just a bit of crack, yeah, right? But you can imagine, for us, it was like grand. Yeah, come on in. We'll, we'll do a couple of sessions. For them, it was like, wow, someone actually gives a hoot about us. Someone actually wants to spend their time. They want to give us, not even money. They just want to give us their time to show these kids that, you know, look at this, you know, here's a business. You can make food. You can, like, that kind of stuff went down really well.
1: And has this played out for you in COVID? You know, because obviously, we were just saying to Emily like, you you stopped. Like, so the 15th of March, doors are closed, pubs are closed, everything's closed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was really, like, it was incredible. They immediately rallied around rascals. From the minute we announced that we had to close, all the messages of support came through on social media then. But afterwards, they put their money where their mouth is. The takeaway pizza was really, really good. But the online sales was incredible. Really? 84% of all our online beer sales in the period of, say, for example, March 12th to May 12th, which was the main part of the um, lockdown, were in Dublin and 36% of them were in Dublin 8, Dublin 12 and Clondonagh and wow, that's our that's, that's our neighborhood and like 37% in that same time period 37% of the 1300 uh, orders were collection rather than delivery so it told us that people local people were going Let's tell you what. Let's let's get a, a case of beer off Rascals. We'll pop up and we'll collect it. We'll say hi to the guys. Like it's like that's amazing. It's it's just such a vindication of of the effort that has gone in with with supporting local communities, supporting local groups.
1: this that this is a, this is a great story because I mean this is exactly what you know we've always argued on the on the podcast. I've always said it to John you know, that I've always thought that a company is like like a social organism. Absolutely. And if you yeah. look at it like a living organism, when some bit is shut down, another bit will actually open up and and kind of compensate if you're thinking that way. Whereas if you think, oh, it's shut down, it's the end of the world, or if you think, as you were saying, that I'm in isolation of my community, then suddenly you actually lose goodwill and then you lose the bottom line very quickly.
0: Yeah, I think goodwill was, was, is, is a key word.
2: hundred uh, percent. I think that the fact that we are located in like suburbia Dublin as well, like that that has really worked for us being simply located there as well.
1: Well, now tell me if I want to buy Rascal Gargle tonight, <laughs> yeah. where do I go? Where's the, What's the website?
2: Yeah, online, rascalsbrewing.com and just click Beer delivery on our website, and you will see all of our, our different case beers that are they're up for sale there. And you can get mix of beers, you can get five liter mini kegs with all sorts of different formats that you can buy our beer in.
1: That's that's me and John sorted for the night now. What's, what's yeah. your best seller?
2: <laughs> Happy Days is our session pale. <laughs> Happy Days. Yeah. We
1: live there. Happy Days. That's brilliant. Emma and Joe, <laughs> thank you both very much. Thanks indeed. very much, David all Okay, thanks a million. Talk to you soon. Bye.
3: That's a fantastic story. And do you know what I love about that story? Is that it's what every company should be ingrained and part of the community. You know that phrase that you hear all the time that I absolutely hate? Two phrases actually is, one is either business is business or, hey, there's nothing personal, it's just business. Bullshit. You're right. Like companies and business is an integral part of every society. Yeah,
1: and everything is personal. Exactly.
3: big development this week, which we have to talk about, is the UN.
1: Ireland got onto the Security Council. It's a fascinating story. I think maybe to give it a bit of clarity, because funny the UN, I had an uncle, an Uncle Tommy who passed away not that long ago, Tommy Dunn down in Cork, Yeah. who was one of the very first UNIFIL soldiers in the Congo in the late 50s, early 60s. That's right. You yeah. know, remember the Jabbatville Massacre?
3: Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: I think they were just, they were the next platoon in just after that. So we've been involved in this game for a long, long time. Actually,
3: do you know that Ireland have the highest number of soldiers in the UN
1: per capita? Do we? Yeah. Speaking, we mentioned India. Yeah. Let's go to India because I have on the line an extraordinary character who was the second in command of the UN who just got beaten by Ban Ki-moon to be the boss, the general secretary of the UN. He's on the line. MP from Kerala, Shashi Tharoor. He will explain what's going on to us. Great. Shashi, how are you? Great,
4: great to hear your voice, David. I am well. I hope you and Sian are bearing up under the strain of COVID and the lockdowns and all the other troubles and turbulence we're going through.
1: Now, tell me, Ireland has just managed to secure a seat on the Security Council. What does that and mean? And Congratulations. Well, listen, Well, I mean, for us, it's, it's, it's quite an elevation. Now, what does that mean, Shashi? Tell me what that means. Well,
4: the Security Council consists of 15 countries, David, and uh, five of those are permanently there. They never have to face election. They are essentially the countries that in 1945, when the UN was established, were deemed the indispensable powers of the world at that time. And that's the US, uh, the UK, and France, which had big colonial empires, Russia, which, of course, was the other superpower, And in a curious choice, but because they felt they couldn't leave Asia out, China, which actually was the weakest of the five at the beginning, and which shortly after the UN was established, uh, lost its government, as it were, to a communist takeover of beijing uh, and 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 the government recognized by the un retreated to the tiny island of formosa now known as taiwan where it continued to vote the chinese vote but as you can imagine wasn't taken very seriously by the rest then mainland china the prc got uh, got that seat as of 1971 And today, uh, most people would consider uh, the U.S. and China to be the two most significant powers in the world. Of course, Russia has a formidable nuclear arsenal. So those three are there pretty much, I think, by, by virtue of continuing right. The British and the French are still somewhat trading on past glories, but the skills of their diplomat tends to be what justifies their presence. The remaining 10 seats in the Security Council are elected Two year terms. So the General Assembly elects countries, uh, and there's a quota for these countries according to so called regional groups that were formed in the years of the Cold War. So Western Europe and others is a regional group, Eastern Europe is a different regional group, Africa is a different regional group, Asia, which includes what you would call the Middle East, is a different regional group, and so on. Now, They had two seats, Ireland, Norway, and Canada all decided to contest for the two seats. And normally, I shouldn't say normally, quite often, there's a friendly discussion amongst potential contenders, and one of them drops out so that um, the other two get elected unanimously or unopposed and they promise to elect the other chap (laughs) when when, uh, a more propitious moment comes along. But this year that didn't happen and uh, Canada bit the dust as Ireland and Norway won the election.
1: Now tell me how, just very briefly, how do you win this election? What, what, What actually goes on behind the scenes? What sort of skullduggery and horse trading goes on behind the scenes?
4: Charming persuasion, I think David is what they would tell you. I don't know if there's Pascal Duggery. I know there are some countries uh, of which Korea and Japan are the most famous who are not averse to extending grants and loans and gifts to various countries in order to get their votes to certain seats. Uh, <laughs> I had the misfortune of running against a Korean candidate for the position of secretary general and uh, and uh, you know we weren't we weren't in the in, the, in that league in fact,
1: you, were, you weren't at the races in that regard.
4: No, well, I I still
1: came close
4: at the end, but um, but I have to say that that's that's the style of some countries and not of others. It certainly wasn't the style of of uh, of India. So what happened really was that um, was that in this particular instance, I think it was relatively decorous. I don't. I mean, all these three countries have a good reputation for being generous to the the poorer nations of the world and generally supportive over a long period of time. Norway, I think, was the first country to have a developing country program in Asia in the 1950s. Ireland has the additional merit, as does Canada and Norway, I I can't say exclusively yours, of being a very responsible global citizen, thanks to your contributions to uh, uh, UN peacekeeping, for example. Uh, Ireland has been a, a very significant long-term player in that area. And, and so Ireland, um, I would say, uh, also has very few enemies, which kind of helps.
1: Now, tell me, Shashi, I want to focus on the very serious business now of the flare-up between China and India, uh, right. and what is going to go on there, because this is very serious. What if Ireland is on the Security Council? What does it mean to have a small country looking at something which may well lead to some very, very serious situations? What's your advice to a small country? To What do you do on the Security Council? Well, let me come to
4: India-China specifically, separately, because I think the, the likelihood of that becoming a hot issue at the Security Council is actually quite remote, because China as a permanent member can veto any unfriendly discussion, and India itself is going to be on the council, and, and the two of them are probably going to find it very awkward to be dealing with a bilateral issue between themselves on the Security Council. But as a general question that you asked about what kind of role Ireland can expect to play, I mean, it's come in with the backing of, of all the member states in the General Assembly, it's Won an election. It's well regarded as a so called small island state. There are quite a few small island states in the UN who have a lot of fellow feeling uh, about that. Uh, Ireland has a good long record uh, of commitment uh, to international security and, and, and to multilateralism. I've already talked about your peacekeeping contribution, which looks even larger when you look at it in per capita terms and the size of your population. I think Ireland first got involved way back in '58 in peacekeeping. So it really goes on for quite some time. You're also a member of the EU, which gives you a certain a special cachet because because you do have the opportunity to bounce your ideas off the other members of the EU and, and to come up with, uh, with a position that uh, may be expected to have some resonance right across the EU countries. There's also a lot of sympathy for Ireland uh, because of the where you're caught between a rock and a hard place on the Brexit negotiations. So you, you've got, I mean, you're going to get a fair amount of attention. Will you be able to have, be a decisive voice? It will vary from issue to issue. The, the ways in which you are influential Inside the council, the bulk of the real work of the Security Council takes place in closed-door consultations. The formal speeches and the raised hands in that wonderful horseshoe-shaped table of the Security Council chamber, that's theatre. That's after everything has already been agreed. There are no surprises at that stage. Where it really happens is behind closed doors amongst the 15 council members, of course, their aides and the secretariat staff a few of us as i could still say huddled in a corner uh, and so um that kind of process, suddenly everyone is equal because, yes, a permanent member, uh, the opposition of a permanent member is taken very seriously because it implies the possibility of a veto. The support of a permanent member is considered valuable unless it antagonizes another permanent member. But the non-permanent members are seen on their own merits. So when Ireland takes a stand on an issue, people will listen because they know Ireland doesn't have an axe to grind. It is tending to speak from... A broader faith in multilateralism and in our common humanity, and that I think is something which which will mean that its voice will be heard fairly effectively. A second way is in the drafting of statements and resolutions. The Irish do have the gift of the gab, and I think that uh, that the sort of linguistic skills of the Irish are going to outstrip those of many others around the table when it comes to crafting. I should sincerely the right hope language.
1: so. I should sincerely hope so.
4: And when it comes to crafting the right sort of compromise language, I mean, you all heard, and it's true, that UN resolutions and statements uh, can, can literally be delayed for hours while people haggle over a comma. Ireland, I think, would be a very influential voice in that. So instead of everyone yielding to the Brits and the Americans on the niceties of the English language, we'll now have the Irish and the Indians telling them how, how to express <laughs> things better. So that could be very useful. Um, and the third thing, I think, is in some of the, the informal quiet conversation, suggesting ways out. Sometimes the bigger powers get locked into, into, into positions they've already taken publicly or their leaders are identified with. A country like Ireland uh, is is much more flexible, is seen as having much more negotiating room. You don't even really have to agree all the time with your EU colleagues, even though in theory the European Union, ever since Maastricht, has a common foreign policy Uh, and and you very often make joint statements together, there is absolutely no bar in the Council on your taking a slightly different nuanced position from other European uh, Union members. So if Britain's uh, Brexit goes through, then of course... Europe only has France amongst the permanent members of the Council, so Ireland's voice is all the more influential for Europe. And a lot of the smaller European countries may come to Ireland asking you to be a particular voice for their interests in a particular issue. So I think it's going to be a fabulously interesting couple of weeks, um, uh, in my view, uh, for, for all of you. And I do believe that Ireland will come out of it very well.
1: Well, you know, Shashi, what really amazes me is I had to go to New Delhi to actually get a clear view of what this all meant for Ireland. Thank you so much for that comprehensive, insider's view of of how the whole thing works. Now, can I ask you about, uh, I mean, what always amazed me as an economist studying, you know, Indian history and and Indians place in the world is when you go back far enough, you know, when you hear the the Romans, you hear, you hear, you hear Pliny, you know, annoyed at the fact that all Roman gold is going to India and that the Indians are making stuff that is so far superior to anything the Romans can do. And then you even go into the early medieval period, and India's maybe 30% of global GDP. In fact, India was 30% out of global GDP for most of what we call the, so the trading history of the world. And then within a... Right, right it was 27% as
4: late as 1700, 23% at 1800. Um, And, of course, by the time the British left Britain, which had come in, I think, at one-third of 1% uh, around that time to India, uh, rose to about 10% of global GDP by 1947, when India was a poster child for third-world poverty. And I think it's, as the Russians used to say in the communist days, it is no accident, comrades.
1: (laughs) And uh, just finally, what do you think, uh, Shashi, about The way the world is going, the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, the reappraisal of colonial history, the fact that, uh, and again with a nod to Irish nationalism, you know, uh, Roger Casement exposed uh, Leopold's tyranny in Congo and even in Belgium, uh, statues of King Leopold are being uh, assaulted, and I would say rightly so. And there's a general sense that we need to reframe history. I know history is your baby. Mm -hmm. It's what you've studied for many, many years. It's your first love. How do you think this will play out?
4: Well, you know, David, I actually think this is a good thing. There's a churning going on, but that churning is actually for once going in a good direction because, you know, the churning we've seen so far has been the anti-globalization churning of the ethno-nationalists, populists, the autocrats. Um, You know, you had your Trump, Modi, Bolsonaro, Erdogan kind of Putin, Xi Jinping – big tough guys who claim to speak authentically for their peoples and who don't care about the rest of the world there's been a, 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 a an unpleasant version of churning in the in the last 10 or 12 years but now seems to be replaced by a kind of cultural and social churning that is making people look afresh at some of the basics that that have helped shape the world we live in today i think the black lives matter movement was looking for a spark to ignite it. Uh, George Floyd uh, happened to be that spark. Many would say that something else could have set it off too. But this is what started it. But now it's become a worldwide movement. It's affecting people at all levels, not just the pulling down of statues, which is symbolic, and the re-examination of why these statues were, were, were built in the first place, where the, of, of the Confederacy in America in the late 19th century, not at the time of the Confederacy, but 30 years after the Confederacy had been defeated was when much of these, many of these monuments came up. Uh, whether it is, it is the monuments to slavers in, in European countries, including Britain and France, uh, whether it is a monument to someone like Leopold in Belgium, uh, or Rhodes uh, in, in England and South Africa, uh, there are all these fundamental questions coming up, and even indeed questioning of, of the racism of Churchill, uh, who was undoubtedly a racist. I mean, I don't think even the, even the biographers who admire him, like uh, Roy Jenkins, would did concede, and when I pressed him, I remember before an audience uh, that yes, Churchill was, as he called it, a racialist. So there's there's suddenly a reappraisal of people for the views they held, which their contemporaries may have been more prepared to indulge them in, but which we are not. And I think it's a healthy sign of how the world is moving on. I think uh, racial discrimination is certainly going to be impossible in uh, you know henceforward because of this general wide uh, awakening. And I, I do believe it's going to affect various areas of life. I was hearing, for example, from some brown, black and brown actors in, in, in London's West End that things have never been better because there is a almost a desire to overcompensate. People who are constantly relegated to third footmen or waiters in restaurants kinds of parts are suddenly being auditioned for leads. Now, there's a, a minor field, if you like, but it's a very good sign uh, that that suddenly the world is opening up to the fact that there's a whole bunch of people who never got a fair shake simply because of the accident of uh, where they were born or the color of their skin uh, or the way they look. And I think all of this is going to be extremely salutary and healthy for the world, even while we face all the other challenges that the COVID era is throwing up, including the real risk of deglobalization, uh, maybe of increasing xenophobia in some ways, but at least within our societies, I hope we'll be more humane and 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 more conscious of racial injustice.
1: Shashi, as as always, we could chat for hours, for hours and hours. But I hope to see you again soon when we're all allowed to travel. Shashi, thank you so much. Take care of yourself.
4: Thank you, David. Best to Sean. All the best. Geez,
3: Shashi can certainly talk, are not he? He can
1: talk. He can talk. But, but, he's, but he's brilliant. He's brilliant.
3: He's absolutely brilliant.
1: And you know what it is? You know what's. The most interesting thing about traveling around and doing these events that I do is you meet these people yeah. who you'll never meet in Ireland. Yeah. You'll never hear that type of person. You'll never hear that level of analysis or, or just sharing those ideas. But I, I thought at the end, what his point was really interesting. He was saying that, look, up until the last few months, we thought that the world was going to be dominated the big, hard what we'd call ethno-nationalist politicians, right, who are constantly talking about tribe, identity, difference, elbowing out multiculturalism, saying to people that you have to be Muslim or you have to be Hindu or you have to be white British or you have to be white American, right? And maybe now in 2020, we're seeing a shift back towards multilateralism, back towards multiculturalism. Back towards understanding that what COVID did is it showed that nobody's safe from a virus. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, where you live, et cetera, et cetera. So I would be quite uplifted, John, that the lesson from the last couple of months is that we are actually one world and we are in this together. And although it's easy to stoke up ethnic and nationalist differences, that's not the way forward. How are you doing there? It's David. Now, the whole objective of the podcast, as you know, has been to share economics, learn economics, make it easier, make it more accessible, make it more relevant. And in that regard, what we've done is we introduced, a couple of months ago, the macroeconomic course. Now we're introducing a new idea. It's going to be called Ask Mac, and what it is... It's a tutorial, but the difference is it's a tutorial designed and delivered and executed by you. You pick the topics. We then give you a tutorial every fortnight on that topic. The first topic is the bond market because we were inundated with your questions about the bond market, how it works, etc. Have a listen to it. The first one is free, and if you like it, sign up and join us on Patreon.com. David McWilliams for the Ask Mac Tutorial.